Jesus then began to speak to them in parables. A man planted a vineyard. He put a wall around it, dug a pit for the wine press, and built a watchtower. Then he rented the vineyard to some farmers and moved to another place. At harvest time, he sent a servant to tenants to collect from them some of the fruit of the vineyard. But they seized him, beat him, and sent him away empty-handed. Then he sent another servant to them. They struck this man on the head and treated him shamefully. He sent another, and that one they killed. He sent many others. Some of them they beat, others they killed. He had one left to send, a son whom he loved. He sent him last of all, saying, They will respect my son. But the tenants said to one another, This is the heir. Come, let's kill him, and the inheritance will be ours. So they took him and killed him and threw him out in the vineyard. What then will, what then will, thank you, what then will the owner of the vineyard do? He will come and kill those tenants and give the vineyard to others. Haven't you read this passage of scripture? The stone the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. The Lord has done this and it is marvelous in our eyes. Then the chief priests, the teachers of the law, and the elders looked for a way to arrest him because they knew he had spoken the parable against them. But they were afraid of the crowd, so they left him and went away. Good morning, everyone. How are you guys doing? Good. Good to be with you guys. My name's Josh. I'm one of the pastors here. And get to continue on in this um, series that we're going through through the Gospel of Mark. And... One of the things, and I've said this before, that I really appreciate about this is when we go through a book of the Bible, it frees us to not, at the beginning of every sermon, give the author and the context and who they're writing to and, and what happened before and what's going to happen after, which you have to do when you just pick a passage out. And so it allows us to really get into the trees a little bit. It allows us to unpack uh, the words of Jesus or the movement of Jesus and get to what is going on. And we pick out these passages, and a lot of the time those passages, we can dig in deep, but sometimes the passage demands us to scope out a little bit. And that's, uh, for today, that's something that we have to scope out and get a l remember a little bit of the context. Last week, we had the situation where the religious leaders went up to Jesus, and they were questioning his authority. And uh, that's very important to what Jesus is doing next. We have this parable that we're going to learn from today, and, and with parables, parables have this unique thing in the Bible. Whenever, I'm be honest with you, whenever I'm like ready to preach and if there's a parable in it, I'm a little bummed out because like parables are so like set for the time, right? Jesus is using an analogy that a bunch of farmers would understand or a bunch of people. That, so it takes a lot of explanation in a parable. You got to explain what's going on, and, and parables in that time had a specific purpose, a specific point, a specific teaching that a parable would have. Most of the times the parables were done verbally. They weren't written down, so they weren't meant to do what we do with a lot of scripture. You're not meant to take each word and pull it apart and figure out what the Greek said about it, but it was a story, a tradition. But this parable is unique in a couple ways, and we're going to get into what that is throughout this morning. It's unique in the fact that this is one of the few parables that the people understood. So that's pretty cool. But it's also one of the parables that Jesus, in the way that he presents it, and the content that he uses, 
that you do need to pay attention to specific words and specific structure. So we're going to be going through that today. We'll be in Mark, if you want to turn there, chapter 12. We're going to be going through verses 1 uh, through verses 12, and we're just going to unpack that. So again, as I said before, stick with me. There's a little bit of background, a little context we got to do as we jump in. Um, and then we'll get into how this all makes sense for us. So verse 12 says this, Jesus then began to speak to them in parables. A man planted a vineyard and he put a wall around it, dug a pit for the wine press, built a watchtower, and then rented the vineyard to some farmers and moved to another place. So he says this, and as he's saying this, he's saying it to a mixed group. He's not just speaking to religious leaders, but the crowds that would follow him. The religious leaders would, the moment he started speaking, something would click in their head and they'd be taken to Isaiah 5. In Isaiah 5, there's this parable, there's this, this description of God building his vineyard on a hill and, and he builds this vineyard and it's in the same way that this man is building a vineyard. So these religious leaders would instantly connect it. But what that story said was that God built this vineyard in hopes of amazing fruit that would come to it, that would bless the entire valley. But instead, the fruit that came from it was wild, and, and, and it was bad, and, and it invaded and went through the whole valley, and it was this wicked fruit. And so this expectation didn't come to fruition. So as we hear this parable, we hear it in our lens, the, the farmers hear it in their lens, and the religious leaders are going to be like, oh, he's going here with it. And we hear that, and there's this parable about what's happening, and then we see the pieces and the guy didn't just go up to some farmers and give them some seed and be like, hey, man, get me some fruit later, okay? Like, here you go. Like, the man took time, planted the seeds, protected the seeds with the fence, then had a place to process the fruit that was expected to come, had a tower that was built to look out over the land, had a tower to build that was supposed to look out for people to come and take or animals that were going to come and take and protect in those towers would store the fruit, would store the items needed to cultivate the land. So every resource was given to steward this piece of land that the owner created. Now, it says that he left the land, and in some translation it says that he went to a different country. This was very, very common in the day. So the majority, when Jesus is telling this parable, the majority of the land was not owned by the people who occupied it. It was owned by Rome. It was owned by rich people who didn't want to live in the difficult land, who said, I own this. You'll give me the fruit from it, but someone else, the tenants, are going to take care of it. So at the beginning of the story, in the very first verse, Jesus engages the religious leaders. He engages the people. He grabs everyone's attention. And the second verse is, and this is a rough passage. We got kids in here. It's fine. We'll move on. It'll be good. Uh, verse two, it says, at harvest time, he sent the servants to the tenants to collect from them some fruit of the vineyard. But they seized him and beat him and sent him away empty handed. They sent another servant to them. They struck this man on the head and treated him shamefully. He sent still another and that one they killed. He sent many others. Some of them they beat and others they killed. So we see this really harsh, difficult piece of the passage that he sent these tenants. So if this is a, the parable that he's telling, he's telling to mainly Jewish people and the religious leaders. And there was a law that if you were going to do this, as a Jewish person, if you were going to cultivate land and leave it to tenants, 
you weren't allowed to expect any payment for five years. And there was a reason for this, that if you give them five years, they're allowed to cultivate the land, create a crop, and next year they can do a certain percentage more, and the yield would actually be higher for you. Long-term, as the owner of that land, it's a better investment. Because if you instantly take what you need the first year, they're upside down, and at some point they're gonna starve. At some point the seeds, there's not gonna be enough to pay taxes and them and everyone. So sometimes I think we view scripture and we kind of think like, you know, God, like he's, he's just nice. He's looking out for the farmers. Like, but it's not just God being nice and thoughtful. It's God sharing his wisdom. He's not just putting a law that we might follow something because it's the right thing to do, but he's saying this is the wise thing to do. And, and there's this reaction that the tenants have, and this is where it got real confusing for me the first time, uh, that, that say it was five years and they came back and, and it said that they wanted some of the fruit, right? So we're just talking the normal expectation. And their response was to physically attack this person and send him away. So the owner sent another servant and there wasn't just a physical attack. Now there was a, uh, an emotional and a mental attack. They were shaming this person. And then the next one comes and finally this attack got so extreme that they killed that person. And we see this escalation of what's happening. And it says that the owner sent more and more and the same situation happened over and over. So the question arises when you re read this passage, why? What's going on? Why are you guys doing this to these servants? And there's a pretty simple reason. It's because the reason that that fruit exists is because of their effort, the sweat from their brow, the decisions they made, the long days that they had in the sun. And to them, why would it be right for someone to come take the literal fruit of your labor? So they responded and the response escalated. At first it was just lashing out and then it was lashing out physically and verbally and finally it's taking it all the way to death. And we see the response from the owner goes one step further. In verse six it says, he had one left to send, a son whom he loved. He sent him last of all saying, they will respect my son. But the, sentence, the tenants said to one another, this is the heir, come, let us kill him and the inheritance will be ours. So they took him, they killed him and they threw him out of the vineyard. Now I know this is pretty down passage, right? And there's a lot of background, but just stick with me. Relevance coming, promise. Um, the, the owner sent his son in this day the son, the firstborn, the heir, was the most, uh, held the most weight and the most respect when they would enter a property. It was the best thing, even more than the owner himself, it was the best thing the owner could do. It was the most real, intense, vulnerable thing that he could do is send his son. I think of it simply, if I have a choice in between my life and my son's life, I choose my life. That's an easy situation, right? Like the son's way more valuable. And he sent his son. And from way off, they saw the son coming. And there's something they didn't see and something they did see. The thing they didn't see was the representation of the one who facilitated all the things needed to steward that land, to create a crop, to sustain life, to develop fruit. They didn't see that. They saw an opportunity. 
They saw an opportunity to finally take everything that they wanted because it was their efforts, it was their uh, ability, it was their sacrifice that led to this fruit. And, And why should anyone else get to take that? But they finally saw an opportunity that they could have everything they wanted. And if you haven't realized this yet, there's, there's a direct correlation of what Jesus is saying. And, and I read multiple scholars on this to see if it lined up. And most people agree that the owner is God. The vineyard is Israel. And not just the people and not just the individuals, but the covenant people of God. And the tenants were the religious leaders. And that is what's happening in this parable. And And when it gets to this point, there's this tension that's building, right? This is one of those parables that everyone understands. The religious leaders are like, wait, I don't, I see where this is going. I don't like where this is going. I know what I am in this. And and there's this distinct thing that's happening. And I'm going to say this, and I'm probably going to say it at the end too, that when we go from stewards to consumers, we rebel against the grace of God. Now, I'm going to say that again. This is very important. It sounds Christian. You're like, ooh, that's good. You can tweet that. Like, that's good in itself. But, like, it's important to hear the words. When we go from stewarding to consuming, we rebel not against the commandments, not against the law, not against the edict of God, because these religious leaders were great at that. There was these guys that could go months with keeping every piece of the law. So they were great at that but we rebel against the unmerited favor of God. We rebel against the owner that took time to cultivate the perfect situation to steward a land that would build a harvest and that would develop fruit. And that is what's going on here. And that's what Jesus is pointing at as he moves forward. And this is where it gets very pointed, especially for those religious leaders. Again, remember, there's the religious leaders and then there's the other people, right? The other people are feeling the same, like they're on both sides of this whole situation, wondering what's going on. So verse nine, Jesus clarifies. He says, what then will the owner of the vineyard do? This is something that Jesus does in parables often, that Jesus has a parable. And when he has, when he does a parable, he likes it to be interactive. He's like, I got a question for you. What do you think should happen? Right? And he's pulling his audience in. He's pulling the people in. What should the owner of the vineyard do? There is one answer. And because there's one answer, He doesn't force the religious leaders to say it. He's like, I know this is hard for you to say. Let me say it for you. What then should the owner of the vineyard do? He will come and kill those tenants and give the vineyard to others. Haven't you read the passage of scripture that says, the stone the builders rejected has become the cornerstone? The Lord has done this and it is marvelous in our eyes. So he answers this question. This is another thing Jesus doesn't always do, right? Usually the parables are like, I have no idea what you just said. And then we read them like thousands of years later and we're like, I have no idea what you said. So like, that's what normally happens. But he answers the question. What should I do that he will kill? Now, now I think we minimize this when we look at it and we just think it's these individuals that are in front of Jesus that are trying to trick him, that are trying to question his authority. What Jesus is saying, not that he will come and kill these individuals that are currently in power, but he's going to kill and destroy the structure, the tradition, the heritage that has led God's covenant people to focus on their actions, on their ability, on their morality more 
then focus on their connection to Yahweh, their connection to a creator, their connection to the redeemer and the provider that led them out of the desert, that, that moved them across lands. That is what he is destroying. And that is what he's moving them on from. There's this passage that he quotes that says that uh, the stone that was cast aside by the builders of the temple would become the cornerstone. And honestly, there's an entire sermon just in that. So we can't get into all the background of that. But what he's saying is that this is the situation we're in. You know what part you're playing in this. You're not casting aside laws. You're not casting aside teaching. You're not casting aside a new edict that I have, a new doctrine that I'm giving you. You're not even casting aside a religious leader or a rabbi or a teacher of the law that I am. You are casting aside the Christ, the Messiah, the foundation, the culmination of God's salvation history is what you're throwing aside. And there's a reason for this. And to bring some of that to, to a more focused for us thing, because this is a hard thing, right? A lot of history, a lot of context of what they're going through. Why do we care? What does it have to do with us sitting in San Dimas in this church? It's because just like then, we live in a society that's built on hierarchies. We live in a society where you're con you're, everything that you do, you're trying to ascend. Whether it's financial, whether it's social, whether it's in your job, whether it's in your relationships, if it's in religions, whatever it is that you're trying to climb a ladder, right? So you go, and, and we all remember, those of us that aren't there, that are past that, when we were teens, and we were about to get that little plastic card that gives us all that freedom. What's the thing we wanted the most? We wanted that car, right? We wanted the freedom, and we get that car, and we take a step up the ladder, right? And we got the car, and then it's like, okay, now I need to get that job, right? Because I got to pay for the car. My parents are expecting me to do things now, pay for my gas and do that type of thing. So you, you get the job, and in the job, you realize you want to work up. You need to have a career and all of that stuff. Maybe you get a house, you get stability, and you climb up the ladder. And maybe it's not just that. It's in your job. You realize you finally get into your career, and it's taking a lot of effort and a lot of sacrifice, but you know you need to do it because you're looking for that stability and you're looking to move forward, so you climb up. Or maybe it's a religion that if you do just enough, right, that you might experience nirvana, that you might experience enlightenment, that you might set a good afterlife for yourself, right? Like you're going to be in a different level of glory if you work hard enough, if you do enough and put enough effort that all religions do that and you're ascending a ladder. And before we get to the point where we like to separate Christianity out of this, we in Christianity use this language a lot. And I think it comes like this, and I'm guilty of this too. Man, I feel far away from God. And it's probably because I haven't been good with my quiet time. I haven't gone to church enough. I haven't prayed enough. I haven't done enough. So we know the checklist of being a Christian. We know what to do and we use it. And we're like, oh, everything else in my life is climbing a ladder. Why should my faith not be climbing a ladder? So we climb up here again. And we do, and we put everything we can forward. And, and Rockefeller said it best, and I think this translates into all areas when Rockefeller said that how much is enough? And he's like, you know what? A little bit more, right? The car is cool, but a nicer car would be better. The house is cool, but we have three kids. We could use another room. Like, I know I'm doing the church thing, and I'm a leader, and I'm involved, 
but man, I need to do more. And we get to this point in our faith and, and we, we've done all this work. And for some of you who've been in this room and you've been following Jesus for twice as long as I've been alive and you've done so much work and you look up and you don't feel closer to God. But something does happen when you're up here. See, I'm up here and something I'm realizing, I'm a little bit above all you guys. I don't get to do this often because I'm short, but I get to look down on you right now. But in a real sense, like, right, like, I'm, I'm a pastor. Like, I literally have a degree in the Bible. I probably know some stuff up here, right? So I can look, and there's something that makes, that comes from me. And it makes me say, how could you not get it? How could you be so hung up on this thing? How could you not understand the grace of God, right? I say, how could you? But then I look down, and I'm like, I know that person. I know Howie over there doesn't do nearly as much as I do for God. How come he's living a better life than me? How come he seems to have God's favor and I don't? See, we don't feel closer to God, but we do have perspective, and that perspective demands something from us. And every religion makes you climb a ladder. Every social structure you're in is about climbing this ladder, but this is what Christianity is, and this is what faith is, and this is what happens that's different, is that God was dissatisfied with how close you were to him. So he went to the same ladder. And he went to the ladder, and he started doing this. See, because he knew that he was in a place that was separate from his creation. He knew that there was a separation that people would be dissatisfied with. And he knew, after watching his people that they will go from building a tower of Babel to doing his laws that he put for the sake of community perfectly to such an extent that they would stop focusing on him as their savior, as their provider, and start focusing on their ability to complete the tasks. So he climbed off that ladder. He entered into the world. He met you where you are to relieve the burden, the one place in your life it isn't expected for you to do more so he can meet you where you are. It wraps up with this last verse. In verse 12, it says, then the chief of priests, the teachers of the law, the elders, we're talking about the big guys here, looked for a way to arrest him because they knew that he had spoken the parable against them. But they were afraid of the crowd, so they left him and went away. See, here's the thing. The religious leaders, they had a bird's eye view. They were standing on that ladder, looking down on all the people they looked down on. They've committed their life to God. But this is what they saw. They saw that they weren't actually closer to God by being up there. They saw the God of the universe actually with all the people that they elevated themselves from. And another thing they saw is how vulnerable they were. See, if I really upset you guys while I was on that ladder, it'd be really easy to push me over. And they knew that they could get toppled over and they knew they couldn't arrest him in that moment because of their situation. In the next passages, you'll see how they try to trick him later on. But they came at him with something, a question to his authority. Jesus' response wasn't teaching them that they were wrong. It wasn't teaching them that he was right. 
It was presenting to them a story. The greatest narrative that has ever existed. I read this passage multiple times and I was like, this is a harsh one. The kids are going to be in there. There's killing. Like, this is a tough passage. It's difficult. It's gross. There's bad guys in it. Like, all this stuff. And the more I read and the more I studied, I realized this is one of the most beautiful words and stories ever spoken by Jesus. You see, because he presented a God that since the fall has relentlessly pursued his people, has sent prophets, Abraham, David, prophets to the people. And you know what he referred to them as? His servants. And he sent another one and they were condemned and they were thrown away and they were beat, sending people to point to him, to point to him as the creator. And he did it over and over and over until finally he sent his son. And what I realized that Jesus was doing is he wasn't defending his authority, but he was presenting these people with the gospel. He was saying, that thing that you cast aside, the thing that, you threw, that you're throwing away, the thing that you're trying to discredit right now, it's going to be the foundation for your life. See, because I don't know where you are right now. I don't know where your life is, what you're going through. Maybe you showed up at church today with like a coin flip. You're like, I should probably go. I'm going to check it out. Like, it's cool. And you're like, I'm not even on that ladder. I don't remember the last time I opened my Bible. Like, I'm over here, away from it. Like, if you're there, or maybe you've just been a person who's strived after God your whole life. And you're like, Josh, am I a bad person because I'm on the ladder? Like, I'm just trying to do the right thing. What I'm not telling you right now is that quiet time, reading your Bible, worshiping, going to church are bad. We're literally doing a spiritual disciplines thing in our student ministry right now. What I'm telling you is, what I'm asking you is to open your heart and check your motive. Because here's my fear for you. My fear is that you are desperately with everything in you, doing everything you were told to do to get closer to a God that's already climbed off the ladder. That you spent so much of your life, so much of your effort being good enough, checking the boxes, and looking up and saying, God, I still don't see you. Because we didn't mean to do this, but in our culture of Christianity, in our Western, Southern Californian culture of Christianity, we've equated good. If someone came in, how are you doing today? Oh, I feel good, blessed, things are great. We've equated good with faith. We've created success with favor. We created stability with the presence of God in our life. And that's fine. We can give God the glory when things are good. But when you flip the script, when things aren't good, does that mean that your faith is broken? When you aren't experiencing success, does that mean the favor of God has been removed from your life? When things are chaotic and thrown into turmoil, does that mean the presence of God no longer exists? None of those things are bad. All of those things are tools, right? The fence, all that stuff that the farmer gave, the owner gave, are tools, and they're beautiful tools, and they aren't bad. But what we need to do is check our hearts and say, are we striving for something that Jesus has already done? And I want to wrap it up with this. One of the things that's crazy to me is Jesus... In his pursuit of us, 
said, I was not satisfied with the separation. So in the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus, I'm bridging that gap. It says that he became sin. He became all of our sin, not just the people that were in front of him. He became all of our sin and buried that in the tomb and left it there. And that when Jesus did that, when he was carrying the cross, that the hands that pulled his arms and stretched them out on the cross before they nailed him to the cross were the hands that he created, were hands that were attached to people that were made in his image. They were the hands of the reason that he was there. I think that we live in a world where we can never feel like we're good enough in a lot of ways. And I think because of that, our faith has just melded into the culture in a lot of ways. And so we live in a faith that we feel like we're never good enough. Can I encourage you with the fact that God jumped off that ladder, that he meets you where you are, that he's not discrediting you if you've tried to pursue him and you don't feel close, that he's saying, I am here, I am with you. We're about to take communion right now. And as we enter into this time of communion, I want us to consider something. I actually forgot to grab a communion element thing. That's fine. Thank you, Melody. I think she's grabbed one. Oh, thank you, sir. I shocked you. You're electric, huh? I am electric. The, as we're taking communion, I want you to consider this. Communion is one of those times, and just to clarify, communion is something that we do, that we proclaim what Jesus did and the results of what he did. That Jesus, when he went with his disciples and had the meal of Passover, he was saying, a new covenant I am making with you. A new way of life. This is the corner, the, the stone that was cast aside that became the cornerstone. All happened in this moment of communion. And this is what we proclaim. And what I want you to consider with this is as I said before, God put you on this earth not to follow a list of rules, not to climb an unbearable ladder that you would never make it to the top of, but he put you on this earth as a steward of the most important thing in all of creation, and that is his image. If you don't have a communion, you can raise your hand, Melody will bring one to you. I already have mine, Melody, so thank you. Um, that he did this for you. It's hard when we look at our life and when we look at whether we're stewards or consumers because so much of our life is about consumerism. But what I want to encourage you with is he created you in an amazing way. And what he is doing, what this book is about, what this meeting is, in this group of people is about is not a bunch of rules and what to do and what not to do, but it's wisdom to live a life that is not bound by the things that enslave us. Some of you might have looked at this book and be like, why would I want to read a book that just tells me I'm wrong all the time? I agree. I don't either. But like the request, like the law that was made that an owner of a property can't get anything back for five years, God didn't do that because it was the moral thing to do or right thing or, or he's a good guy. God did that because that's the wise thing. Because long term, that's what would be best 
for the people stewarding the land and for the owners of the land. The encouragements that we have in this room, the encouragements we have through God's word isn't telling you all the ways that you fall short. It's telling the ways that you can live a life of freedom. And we proclaim that freedom in communion. So Jesus, as he sat in that meal of Passover, he took the bread and he broke it. And he said, this is my body broken for you. Let's take the bread together. And likewise, after they had had this meal, and I know I emphasize this, I just think it's really important. They had this meal that could have been hours long and they laughed and they talked and they cried and they did whatever they did at this meal. And after they finished, he took the cup and he didn't say this is the new law. This is the new list uh, list of things that you need to check off, rungs on the ladder that I need you to climb for me. He said, this is the new covenant that I'm making with my people who I, just dropping things, who I love. And he took the cup and he said, this is the new covenant poured out in my blood for you. Let's take the cup together. This passage felt like a very heavy passage to me, and in some ways it is. And as I pray and as we end, some of you might have been doing this faith thing a long time, and you're like, I don't know, Josh, I'm on that ladder. Like, is it bad? And you have questions. Please find one of us. Some of you might just be checking this church thing out for the first time, and you're like, there's a lot going on. Can I unpack some of this? Please find us. Some of you might just be hurting and you need to offload that burden and realize you're not alone. Please, please find us. This community isn't about having it together, being good or being fine. This community is about striving after a relationship with God and resting in what he's done. Let's pray. Lord, I thank you. I thank you for your word that doesn't result in another ladder that we are to climb for the actions that you had on this earth that doesn't result in us feeling inadequate, in us feeling like it's something that we can never attain, we can never achieve, Lord. But I thank you that you bridged the gap because you love us. So Lord, for those in this room that feel alone, that don't feel loved, that feel like they don't know what to do next, I pray that you would embolden them to talk to someone to share that burden with someone else. For those of us who, who are striving after and trying to just know you more, that you would give us joy in that pursuit of who you are, not because of what we've done, but because of what you've already done. And Lord, for each one of us in this room, that you would remind us of what you have entrusted us to steward the very representation of who you are in a world that desperately needs hope. So God, we thank you and we rejoice not in a law, not in a list of rules, but in a savior who pursued us and is with us. We give these things to you in your name.